What's going on? Welcome into the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. Today is Tuesday, October the 13th, 2020, episode 36. However you listen into this thing, thank you for doing so. A number of ways to find the podcast, whether you're listening on your Apple device, Apple podcast, you're listening on your Android device, or whatever that deal is. If you're listening on inthemoneypodcast.com, where you can find this show, you can find the flagship show, the In The Money Players podcast. You can find Talk Racing to Me with Naomi Tucker. You can find JK Plus One with Jonathan Kinchin. You can find the Racing Picks Players podcast. You can find Redboard Rewind with Spencer Lugenbuehl. You can find the Nick Luck Daily podcast. You can find a million different things over on inthemoneypodcast.com. Or if you're on YouTube, which I would strongly encourage you of all weeks, even if you're someone who typically listens on your phone or however you listen to your pods, I would strongly encourage you to check out YouTube this week because this is going to be a rather dense episode after the Friday feature with Andrew Wright, which we'll talk about more in a moment. However you listen, though, please rate, review, and subscribe. Give us thumbs up, thumbs down. Leave comments beneath the video player on YouTube. It's all greatly appreciated. It helps us all in the long run for a number of different reasons. But please, rate, review, and subscribe. Questions, comments, concerns, as usual, beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. The reason I bring up YouTube for this week, even if you're someone who typically just listens on your phone or however else. First, we'll start off with the Friday feature, uh, the ninth at Keeneland this week. It's the Grade 3 Valley View. Andrew Wright is aboard to help us out. Fascinating backstory. Uh, really nice guy. Met him a couple times out in Southern California. Really sharp handicapper. He's going to hopefully direct us in the right direction for the Valley View on Friday. If you want to be in his position next Monday, and I say next Monday, might actually be next Tuesday because next Monday is my anniversary. So it might be next Tuesday. Uh, leave your selection beneath the video player on YouTube. I will update you as we get closer. But it'll probably be Tuesday of next week. Let's plan on that. Uh, leave your selection beneath the video player on YouTube. If you are correct, I will contact you and we'll make something happen. Um, and you know what? And me saying that, now that it's all allowed, I don't even know if I'm going to be here next Tuesday. I may be on the road. So i tell you what. tell you what. We're going to call an audible. On the fly. PTF always jokes about production meetings in the middle of the show. This is my own personal production meeting. In the middle of the show. Friday feature for this week. If you pick the winner and it all works out, let's go with Monday the 26th. It won't be next week. I'll go solo next week. There probably won't be any video either just because, again, I'm going to be somewhere remote in Maine. Let's plan on Monday the 26th. If you are involved and you pick the winner for this week's Friday feature, the 9th at Keeneland, the Grade 3 Valley View. So, now that that's out of the way, Andrew Wright will hopefully guide us in the right direction. After that, there were enough people who brought up that they thought it would be interesting to hear about. I was going to do it anyway, but I figured I would share it here. I have an updated track profile for the fall meeting at Keeneland Racecourse. It's important because the Breeders' Cup will be at Keeneland in a few weeks. I have gone back to the fall meet of 2015 which happens to be the last time the Breeders' Cup was held at Keeneland, and only the fall meetings. Haven't used the spring meet, haven't used this year's summer meet, because I wanted it to be what I considered as accurate as possible as far as data was concerned. Now, some of you will be bored to tears 
And I would suggest if that's the case, feel free to just nix it after you hear Andrew talk about the Friday feature. We chop that race up. If you're someone who's interested in hearing about it, you're probably better off going on to YouTube and watching it because I have the spreadsheet up in the full screen and I can show you some different things. So that's what the back half of this week's episode is going to be all about. Uh, again, questions, comments, concerns, beneath the video player on YouTube, you know the drill by now. So that's what's coming here in episode 36. Without wasting any more time, let's get into the Friday feature with Andrew Wright. We're talking about the 9th at Keeneland, the Grade 3 Valley View. If you want to be in Andrew's position in two weeks, leave your selection beneath the video player on YouTube. Let's dive into it. The Grade 3 Valley View, this week's Friday feature. All right, Friday feature time. After a couple-week hiatus, here we go, looking at Keeneland's 9th on Friday. October the 16th, it's the Grade 3 Valley View to help us out. Andrew Wright. Andrew Wright has one of the more fascinating backstories. For those of you who are unfamiliar with him, don't know him, Andrew, first things first, thank you for doing this, taking a little bit of time. You have been screwed a number of times with this thing because you picked, I think you've picked four winners somewhere thereabout. Does that sound right? Sounds about right. And every time you get the short end of the stick as far as the random draw on Google is concerned. So I figured this would be a good opportunity to reward one of the people who have picked the most winners for this Friday feature. So thank you for continued support. And if you don't mind, give everybody a little bit of your, your background. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. Uh, so I work for TVG right now. I work in the VIP department. I grew up in Del Mar and I've been following the races since I was about 16. Um, I've been to three Breeders' Cups, so uh, I've loved it over here. I uh, went to Del Mar and Santa Anita twice, um, and so I'm excited to get into this race. Now, as far as your uh, prior sort of history is concerned, I know, I don't know how deep you want to get into it, but uh, at one point, uh, professional baseball was on the horizon. Correct, yeah. So I, I grew up playing uh, baseball in high school, and then I was fortunate enough to play at USC, in, uh, in LA. And then from there, I got drafted my junior year, played with the Cincinnati Reds uh, for a year and a half, got Tommy John, wasn't able to recover from it, um, and immediately went from there uh, to TVG. Was the was racing always sort of, I don't want to say the, the backup plan, but was did you always think that a career in racing was something that you were going to be looking forward to? Or did you have other aspirations outside of baseball? No, not at all, actually, really. So once I was done with baseball, um, I went back to USC to finish up my degree. And then a, uh, a friend of mine who works for TVG at the time just immediately asked me, hey, saw that you're done with baseball. Any chance you want to come work for TVG? And it worked out perfectly because that was just when I was going to start looking for jobs. Um, so, yeah, it's, I've been there for two and a half years, and I've loved it every, every bit of it. Getting ready for the Breeders' Cup to come back next year. It'll be down at Del Mar and follow it Absolutely. up again with a trip out here to Lexington. And Keeneland, let's start off, before we dive into this race specifically, your overall thoughts, obviously this year has been a little bit of a, an odd one for everyone all around, not just in horse right. racing, but the world in general. From a Breeders' Cup standpoint, you know, I've been chatting with a few different people. The Classic, to me, looks as deep as, as any I can remember in recent memory anyway. It may not be Hall of Fame horses, but I think it's an exceptionally deep group, and I think it can go a few different ways. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I wouldn't say, you know, in terms of speed figures or buyers anything it's not like we have any absolute monsters in there but i, I do think everybody kind of has the same speed figures um, at the top at least and so i think it's really deep um i think there's gonna be a lot of value this year and i haven't figured out exactly where i'm gonna go but at, at, as of now i'd say improbable has been the most um consistent on the year and he's probably where i'd go right now 
you know, and I've mentioned, I'm glad you brought that sort of piece up with, you know, it's still so far out. I've even brought up to folks, there's a difference between making a pick and ultimately who you're going to bet. I mean, there's a real scenario where I'm just throwing it out there. If I really like the horse like Maximum Security, but he's going to be five to two or three to one, and you're going to have a horse, I'm making it up by my standards or someone else who I know you've got a little bit of a financial interest in. If he goes off at 15 to one and you think he should be eight to one, I'm probably going to be betting him as opposed to betting maximum security in a race that's as deep and, and competitive as this one. Yeah. And I mean, when it comes down to value, if, if, if my, you know, if my solid opinion is, isn't um, loaded in value, then I'll probably look to other races to key him up and, and get to that horse or whatever. But um, you know, I, when I, when I go through the card and I decide, um what my plays are going to be on the day it's based around value so you know the, the classic is obviously the fun one and and everybody's looking into it but if, if there's no value in the race you know it doesn't have to be your biggest play of the day 100 percent, and i think that's something that too many people sort of lose sight of that just because it is sort of the the air quotes featured event it doesn't mean that it has to be the one that you send all your money in on you find your opinions throughout the races earlier i was just talking to uh, al stewart from the uh stew pot the stew cast and he was, we were talking about the, the Breeders' Cup turf, and I said, you know, it's it's a race that I'm fascinated by, but when push comes to shove, there's a real chance that I just sit the thing out because trying to make heads or tails of the Europeans coming over here after the whole issue with Aiden O'Brien where, you know, he had his whole lot basically get scratched out of the arc. And whether or not Love comes here and Gaioth, how is he going to take to the turf here? It, it may be a more fun race to watch as opposed to having any real financial skin in the game unless you have a super strong opinion. Absolutely. That's exactly how I feel. You got to find the horses that actually make sense to bet, not just the ones that you think are most likely winners. Now, as far as likely winners and wagering is concerned, this ninth race at Keeneland on Friday, the grade three Valley view, one of the last opportunities for age restricted races. And I think it's an important piece to, to bring up, you know, so many of these girls, you know, other instances, maybe their campaign is more or less done or they have to take on older horses. It's nice when you can find these last spots and you don't have to run against the cream of the crop. Let's be honest. The QE2 was run this past weekend. Those were the proper girls who we may end up seeing come Breeders' Cup time again. These girls, a little bit shorter distance, maybe a notch or two below, or maybe it's some horses who it's just taking them a little bit longer to develop and get up to this sort of level. What's the first thing you look at in general from a handicapping standpoint, but especially turf routes? So I start with the favorite usually. Um, when I look at a race, I want to decide, okay, do I like this horse? Do I think do I think this horse has a very good chance of winning? If not, I'll look to try to beat him, and I'll look for other horses. And I think that started with the chat on uh, in the in the one hole there. Um, you know, going into those races, the horse was uh, favored on debut. The dam's a nice G three winner on turf. Um, the maiden breaker was hand timed at Monmouth, so I don't really take much stock into the time, but. Um, visually it was never in doubt and, it, and, and there was clearly something there. Um, in the last race horse got a pretty aggressive ride and it was a somewhat paceless race on paper. Um, she put away her main competition, which was the other Chad at the top of the stretch. Um, so I thought she's got a pretty good shot to wire here, um, with upside in, in only the fourth start. So I did actually, um, put a lot of stock into her. Now, what do you do with the horse? Now you, you brought it up to Opoli as the horse we're talking about down on the inside Gaffalion scheduled with the Mount. With a filly who is yet to prove that she can pass runners, does that concern you at all? Or do you look at it and say, from what I've seen, maybe I think she has a rateable gear? How do you sort of approach a horse like that? Yeah, so I'd say in this case with, with 12 horses in the field, um, you know, 
I, I don't have a necessarily a strong opinion from a wagering standpoint at all, but I'm just looking in terms of um, likelihood to win. I think Duopoly is going to go from the rail. And I think her chance, my evaluation of her is that she needs to be on the lead to win this um, based off the other pace pressure that's going to be in there. Um, so I, I don't really worry about her having to pass horses in this scenario. It, it's kind of just a wild card to me at that point. If she if she can't pass horses, then my ticket's probably up in the air. Well, and it, and it is one of those difficult things too. And I know I probably sound like a broken record when I bring those sort of things up, but it's it's trying to project or predict something that you have. It's purely a speculation because we don't know. We don't have any body of evidence to go off of at this point yet. The only thing we do know is that when she's out there on the front end, she loves life and she can, she can go out there and wire a field. So we'll find out if she is able to make the front there. Al Stahl's Philly just to the outside has got a little bit of early foot. She may not be as naturally fast, though, early on as Chad's Philly. Um, I'm curious your thoughts about the far outside runner, Antoinette for Bill Mott, because She's always been a horse who has hinted at ability. She has won a stakes race. She won that run up at Saratoga in the Oaks. But I I can't help but feel like, and maybe it's because I've got a personal history with her where I've been burned. I can't help but think that, is she just a notch below or am I being a little bit, uh, a little bit uncharitable? So here's how I saw it. I saw, um, so I went to her uh, duopoly as the favorite. She's, she's got faster early foot than most of these, if not all of them, probably. She's from the rail. Um, so in good spirits is the Al Sol horse, correct? Yeah. Yeah. So my note on her is uh, she's never passed a horse in her six races and is, isn't likely to be on the lead with Duopoly. Um, her stretch runs haven't been the strong part of her races, so I don't see her out finishing Duopoly. That being said, Antoinette from the outside, um, she's got speed. She's a classy animal that's actually faster than most of these. Um, she, she does her best work on the lead, but I don't see her getting it here. So um, she also hasn't passed many horses in her career. Um, she stays on well, but finish isn't her strong suit. She should take a ton of money. I think she's likely for the exotics, but yeah, I, I don't see her being on uh, on the top of my tickets. Um, she does feel a, a, a notch below, and I do think stretching uh, out in distance is definitely better for her than going this eight and a half. Well, and you and you bring up the money aspect of it as well. I feel like she's a name that people are familiar with, and, and whether she deserves to get bet or not, I think she's probably going to take more money than she necessarily should. And that outside draw, I don't think is going to be any kind of a cupcake for her. Another thing specifically about Antoinette, and I know in recent memory, we've had, we've had a fair amount of horses who have been, I don't want to say equally as capable on either surface, but you know, the first one that comes to mind for me recently is Catholic boy, where he was a grade one winner on both turf and dirt. And we obviously have seen that with war of will and some of these other runners, but Antoinette kind of fits into the weird mold for me of, I think she's equally as capable on either, but the problem is I don't know that it's necessarily exceptional on either. Do you know what I'm saying? I feel like she's just, I think she's good. I don't think she's a superstar though. She's certainly not what I had hoped she was going to be. And who knows? She's a three-year-old. Maybe next year is a four-year-old. She takes another step forward. She's bred to be a nice horse. Obviously all the dolphin horses are bred to be nice, but uh, she's one I can understand folks trying to fade a little bit in here. Florent Giroux maintains the mount on outburst, the number 10 horse in here for Eddie Keneally. Now, this is another horse who, on paper, depending on which speed figures you use, and I won't put you on the spot for what figs you use or, or what you do and don't like, one set of figs would suggest she's not fast enough, another set of figs would suggest she is. How do you usually look at horses like this, and let's just use specifically her in this instance? Yeah, so, I mean, I don't feel like it's on the spot. I, I use DRF Formulator for, for the majority of my handicapping, and then I, I like to reference Brisnet uh, mm -hmm. for the they have um 
solid PPs. Uh, it's another good look at a speed figure to give you a comparison of where people are going to be betting. Um, I've had a lot of trouble with the turf figures on Brisnet, so I always take those for granted. Um, so Outburst, you know, with her, it's hard to say because she came into America with a pretty nice win and then was favored in the, um, in the Florida Oaks off a high morning line and then actually was able to get the win wiring the field. However, I don't think any of the horses that she was running against had developed very much at that time. And I think being on the front end is the best place to be in those scenarios. Um, she hasn't really improved at all. She ran uh, fourth last time behind actually some really serious fillies. That was sprinting at six and a half. Um, she's just never really polished off her races though. So um, another, that's kind of, a, this one, she's kind of a wild card here for me. Yeah, she's, she's a difficult one for me to really kind of have any, any strong conviction about simply because again, depending on what figures you use, you know, if you're a fan of the buyers, she effectively hasn't gotten any better. We haven't seen that improvement through the course of the three-year-old year. Conversely, if you use something like a Timeform US fig, she is every bit as fast as some of these other girls in here, and she might offer a price on the stretch out distance. And to your point, she was running against some serious fillies in that sprint race at Kentucky Downs. So she's a very interesting candidate uh, one way or the other. You either love her or you hate her, or you're like us and can't make heads or tails. Um, any other fillies in this race that you found intriguing or you were hopeful that maybe you would get a decent little bit of value on? Yeah, so, you know, going back to the process of this race for me, I just convinced myself that um, that Duopoly is going to take a step forward and be a, probably a pretty serious filly for Chad. And so with that, with me taking that stance already, I kind of have built my race around that. So I could either be really right or I could be really wrong. I don't think the speed horses in this race have a very good chance of running her down, considering that I'm betting on her taking a step forward. So now I'm looking at horses that can pass her in the stretch or pass the other speed in the stretch and hopefully get some value underneath in the exotics. Um, I thought, well, Sugar Fix is one that I, I don't like, but I have to say she's got 10, 10 of 14 lifetime exactas, um, seven wins. She had consistent figures before moving into Safi's barn and jumped up. I don't really trust the last figure at Kentucky Downs because most of the horses returned with declining buyers, but a lot of the horses are coming out of Kentucky Downs pretty fit. Um, I don't know exactly why. I guess the configuration or maybe the trainers that were winning. Who knows? But another wild card. Not too interested, but I thought it was worth noting. Um, I like Stunning Sky to actually um, to run a big one here. She's had improving figures as she stretched out. Um, she's been fit and in good form. I don't think she's going to be as close as she was in the last three, um, just because she's cutting in back in distance. Uh, in distance, but um, I think she's likely to put in a good bid. So I, I'd probably try to get her involved in the exotics. One I actually do really like is uh, the six. How ironic! Um, Bayerano's been on her. Um, she steadily improved through her last uh, 12 li lifetime starts. Two back ran at this distance, made a, a last to first move and blew by them. Um, it wasn't a great field, but it was it was a pretty impressive run. Uh, she ran pretty evenly going at uh, 10 and a half at Kentucky Downs. Um, she's got good finish. I think she'll be coming from the back, and I'm hoping that she can get involved what, at what should be a really good, uh, really big price. And then the other horse that I'm interested in is Wits. I think that's I think that that's how you pronounce the five there, Wits. Um, continuing to improve pr pretty much every start, had good momentum in the stretch of her last race, um, had a little trouble at the beginning. Um, she had the second fastest come home time behind Michelin, who came back to run big in her last two. Um, that's a big angle I like to take um, that a lot of people have too, but um, the final come home time is just so important because the stretch runs just pivotal. Um, and then, so she's no standout, but I think she's, she's going to run well here. And, but the problem is worth noting that Ian Wilkes and Leperu are pretty much ice cold at this meet. 
Certainly is an issue. And I mean, this is a Philly, you know, you brought up two Phillies that I find interesting. One of them is, is what says here where, because to your point, I, like I loved her in the Lake George and it was just one of those things where it felt like she just got the engine cooking a little bit too late. And you take a look and see where the top two Phillies were positioned. I know selflessly didn't, you know, get out there and, and blitz the field or anything, but they were both much closer and Wittes tried to come and roll down the field. I thought she ran really well that day. I think she fits in here quite well. She's run nicely at Keeneland in the past. I just, she, to me, makes a lot of sense, especially even if you don't love her on top. I feel like she's a very logical horse to hit the board at, at what I'm hopeful is a, a fair number. I don't know. There's no morning lines out just yet, so it's kind of just conjecture. But I would imagine she's probably somewhere in that 9-2, to 5-1 range. I think that would be fair. And you bring up an interesting point with, with Stunning Sky. Stunning Sky is a horse who hasn't gotten over the hump against better, but she's run really well against better. And I think that, to me... That's that's a uh, that's a piece that I think too many people just sort of overlook. Where horses, okay, maybe you're not getting your picture taken every week, but you're running well against horses who, in this race, I don't want to say would be barred from the wagering, but would be very very short prices. Specifically coming out of that Dueling Grounds Oaks, we saw Harvey's Little Goyle come back and win the QE2 last weekend. We saw Luck Money come back and win when I was down there about a week and a half ago. I mean, that race has come back live. You brought up the slight turn back in distance. She's probably not going to be nearly as close as she's been in some of these other runs. I think that works to her advantage a little bit. I, I'm with you on, on this filly. I think she's real sneaky in here, and I wonder if people look at her and they're, ah, well, she'll, she'll just get a piece of this thing. She's not good enough to compete. I wouldn't, I wouldn't totally rule her out just yet. I think you bring up a very good point with Stunning Sky. Your overall piece, though, you believe Chad's filly is the goods duopoly down on the bottom. That's the stand I'm taking. I don't te- necessarily have a huge opinion on it. However, that's how I'm how I built out the race. So I need her to be that good for <laughs> it to work out. Um, I need her to put away the speeds, and then I think the speeds will uh, fade, and then we'll get a bomb from the clouds. That's how I will wager it. So I'll probably play exactas with um, the one duopoly over. Uh, how do I how do I pronounce that? Wittes. I went with Wittes. Okay, well, we'll I, could, I could be wrong though. Yeah. I'll probably play weighted exact as there with Botez, how ironic, and then Sunning Sky in second. Beautiful. Andrew Wright, where can folks follow you on Twitter? My Twitter is at A-E-S-D-U-B, A-S-Dub. Very easy to follow. None of this stuff where you got 15 different letters in there that's 25 things long. It's real straightforward, nice and easy. Andrew Wright, good luck this weekend with this race. I appreciate you coming on. Hopefully we chat again soon. I mean, if you keep picking winners with the rate that you have been, I'll be talking to you sooner than later. And good luck in the Breeders' Cup. We don't talk beforehand. Thanks a lot, Matt. Appreciate it. Time to talk track profile at Keeneland Racecourse for the fall meetings dating back to 2015. Now, uh, to be as specific as possible as it relates to the Breeders' Cup coming up here in a few short weeks, I only use the fall meetings. So the spring meetings at Keeneland and this year's summer meet have not been included. Uh, I will probably go through and do that as we get into the spring next year just to see if there are differences between the way the track plays in the fall as opposed to the spring and vice versa. For those of you who have never done a track profile, and are new to the exercise and, and look at this and go, what what the hell are we looking at? I'm going to give you, this is a modified version of what I've pulled from the, the book uh, Modern Pace Handicapping by Tom Brohammer. I think it's a, a an imperative read if you are someone who believes in pace handicapping and things like that. Now, I've tweaked it slightly. I don't have it nearly as, I don't want to say as detailed, that's not accurate but I don't have all of the data points 
that Brohammer's model suggests, his profile suggests anyway. I used to do that. I've adapted it in time. But I will read you off what you're dealing with effectively right from the book, the data entry points. Distance, which you can see in these bars right here, six furlongs and, well, less than and equal to six furlongs, six and a half to seven furlongs, the about seven furlong distance on the beard course. Uh, and then I have greater than or equal to eight and a half furlongs. I have omitted the eight furlong races on dirt simply because I didn't think there would be enough as far as data points were concerned to draw conclusions. Um, upon further review, I probably could have and probably should have, but I didn't. So I'm not even going to try to speculate because there is a difference between eight and a half and eight or nine and eight or ten and eight. Now you look at the turf, I have less than or equal to five and a half furlongs, when in reality it's just five and a half furlongs. They don't run shorter races on turf at Keeneland. I have the eight furlong turf races separated from the eight and a half to nine and a half furlong turf races. And then I have greater than or equal to 10 furlongs for the final category. Now, that's one piece. You have the number of entries as suggested by the Brohammer model. I used to do that. I no longer do that simply because for me, it was more a matter of, I'm more interested in where the horse is positioned as opposed to how many horses there are and ultimately what the position of the horse at that certain moment was. So in a field of 10, if the horse is sixth and a length off the pace, or in a field of six and the horse is second a length off the pace, I guess you can look at it and say, oh, well, that's important because in one instance there are you know five more horses ahead. I'm more interested in the lengths behind. So in my own practice, I've done away with the entries. Now, I can understand if you're new to this and maybe you want to just go by the letter of the law, I would encourage you to do it as Brohammer in Modern Pace Handicapping has suggested. Again, I've made tweaks in time to fit what I feel are the most important pieces. You're going to note that there are two columns here, and I've just labeled them six furlong one, six furlong two. These are the calls, okay? Now, the big difference here is, and let's start with a six furlong race. There are two points of call. You have the first call, which for a six furlong race is going to be a quarter of a mile into the run, and the second call is going to be a half mile into the run. That's how that will be for one turn sprint races. First call is a quarter mile in, second call is a half mile in. That goes for dirt or turf. For route races, the first call, as opposed to the quarter mile in sprint races, becomes a half mile for route races, and the second call becomes three quarters of a mile. Because, effectively, you're, you're dealing with a, a greater distance. And, and as far as determining pace situations, using the half in a route race is more effective than using the quarter in a route race. Okay? So those are two pieces that you'll need. First call and second call. And then for those of you that are involved with the Sartan methodology, he's included the uh, energy percentage sort of used for runners but again, that's only for those of you who have used the Sartan methodology. And I believe you can go through. Ken Massa does a great job with a, a product called HTR2. Um, I don't know that they've gleaned a ton of signal from the, the energy percentage um, piece of the equation. But I, I could be wrong. It's been a, a few months since I've, I've used the product. So anyway, that's, that is what you're looking at as far as these columns across the top are concerned and what they mean. They are the points of call for the different 
distances. Now I've split them up. And again, this is what I have found to be effective throughout the years. I try to group like races. There is a difference between a seven furlong sprint race and a six furlong sprint race. Stamina becomes more of a, a test and things like that, obviously, in the seven furlong race than the six. Um, but then you have those weird races like six and a half. I have, over time, grouped the six and a half furlong races with the seven furlong races as opposed to grouping them with the six. I think they play a little bit more to the seven than the six. It's my opinion. There is no necessarily, no no proper science involved in that. That is That's just how I approach this. You can feel free to group them however you want. And that will change, obviously, some of the data points if you group the six and a halfs with the six as opposed to the six and a halfs with the seven. Because now you will gain more with the sixes. It'll alter those numbers and alter the seven for long races. Uh, the, the beard course, I have it listed here. It's not going to come into play as far as the Breeders' Cup is concerned. But it, I, again, I was doing a full-blown profile. Might as well find out what those races sort of lean toward. Uh, you will note that some of the numbers listed here are fractions. Uh, it's pretty self-explanatory. We're dealing with lengths back or lengths ahead of the field at these given calls by the winner. That's all we care about with the track profile, at least for this one. Now, you can also make a track profile for the runner-up if you're into playing exactas and things of that nature. I'm only concerned about trying to glean, glean some information about winners at Keeneland, where they're positioned throughout the run on different surfaces and at different distances. The fractions break down as this. 0.5, half length. Pretty straightforward. 0.1 is what I use for a head. So when you go through the charts and you see, you know, first by a head, that to me is 0.1. If you're using a neck, I call that 0.2. But frankly, don't see a neck at a ton. You see it, but you don't see it a ton in there. More often than not, it ends up getting closer to a half length. So that's why you'll see some fractional pieces broken down in here, like this race right here uh, on October the 2nd, 2015. At the first call, the leader I have as 0.6 lengths ahead, or behind, excuse me. Now that's the other piece that we're going to have to just make sure is abundantly clear. The positive values are behind, lengths behind the pace setter at each given point. Negative values mean this horse was the pace setter and how far ahead of the second place horse they are at each call. I hope I'm explaining that clearly enough. The negative values indicate the horse was on the lead and by how many lengths. Positive values indicate that the horse was coming from off the pace and how many lengths behind the pace setter they were at those given points of call. You'll also notice some colors here. Any cells that are filled with this light blue indicate a track that is less than fast and less than firm. So for the main track, obviously, we're dealing with it could be good, it could be sloppy, it could be good sealed, sloppy sealed, whatever it may be. Wet fast, they'll be filled with blue. On turf, anything less than firm, I have filled as blue. And you can filter these different things. So when I went through and put this spreadsheet together, I put in these little pieces here where you can go through, or I can go through anyway, and determine what I want to use as data points and things like that. I can filter it by color and, and X, Y, and Z.
Now, what does all of this ultimately lead us to? I think it can dispel some preconceived notions or it can confirm some things. And all this exercise is supposed to do, and I need to throw the disclaimer out there. It, I, this is, frankly, this is mostly for me trying to get ready for the BCBC. And, and you know what? I can even stretch that farther. It's, it's, for, it's for using any time you're playing or I'm playing races at Keeneland in the fall. This does not guarantee that you're going to have success if you use a track profile. I do think it can, A, shorten your handicapping, but also, B, you can start to see races a little bit clearer as far as this horse really needs to be positioned in a certain place to really have a proper chance to win. Now, it doesn't mean that when I show you the averages, that horses can't win from farther back or from in front of those positions. You can see, again, if I, if I click on the filtered piece, you can look at the range of where horses have been positioned as opposed to others. So effectively, you can draw that conclusion and say, oh, well, as long as you're within X number of lengths, you're in with a chance. That may be the case on a one-off basis. I'm more interested in seeing what the average is. And there are enough data points going back to the beginning of 2015's fall meeting for me to draw those conclusions. This is not a guarantee. If you use any of this information, I'm not saying you're going to have unbelievable success at the Breeders' Cup. This is a small piece to the puzzle. I'm going to use it. I'm not telling you to use it or not. Do with it what you will. You could look at it and think it's garbage. I'm also throwing it out that there can be clerical errors on this. When you go through and you're just charting things, I'm going rapid fire. And occasionally there's a little bit of a, a slip of the key. But there are enough data points that for the most part, we're dealing with things that should be pretty tight. So you may go through and do all this, and our numbers may be slightly, slightly off. They shouldn't be off by wide, wide, wild ranges. They should be reasonably tight all throughout if you chose to do the exact same thing, which really, if you've never done track profile, I would strongly encourage you to do so. It's, a, it's an exercise that is very, it's time consuming, but it's easy. And I think it, it really does help, in my opinion. Ever since I started doing it, and I can't, I'll keep pumping the book, Modern Pace Handicapping by Tom Brohammer. I think it's it's a fundamental book if you are someone who cares about pace and and thinking a little bit differently than sort of your standard, you know, old school methodology of how pace is analyzed. I would strongly encourage folks to pick this book up. As far as the data points are concerned, and these races over here, You'll note that I don't have every race used on every day. Why is that? Well, there are a couple pieces. A, no two-year-old races. Two-year-old races, there, there's too much variance in there. There's too many wild results that can happen and can skew data. At this point, I don't, I don't see any need for two-year-old races. I believe Brohammer goes deeper into that as well in the book. No two-year-old races. I'm open to using three-year-old races and three-year-old restricted races at this point in the year simply because I think you have a less volatile product from the three-year-olds as opposed to early in the year. So I won't use a three-year-old race for the spring meeting at, fall, uh, at Keeneland excuse me, because there is still so much variance and they're still developing and, and the whole nine. But by this point, six months later, I'm willing to use those included in my data set. So... Three-year-old only races are used. 
But earlier on, so basically before Saratoga and Del Mar, I won't use them. From that point on, I'll at least consider it. In this instance, three-year-old restricted races, they are included in the data set. No two-year-olds. No maiden races. Maiden races, again, they can be a little bit wild as far as results and variances are concerned. I don't think they're the most true sort of data points to be trying to determine any kind of real real information from. We'll use no maiden claiming races as well. Maiden races, period. Special weight claiming, doesn't matter. No maidens, no two-year-olds. No off-the-turf races. For obvious reasons. I understand certain horses can go out there and do whatever they need to do on the main track, but the point is the race was intended to be run on a different surface. You can get a number of horses in that race who can't stand up on the main track. I don't have any interest in using that. That can skew the data. So, no two-year-old races, no maiden races, no off-the-turf races. Off the top of my head, I believe that checks all the boxes. I know some people are reluctant to use bottom-level claiming races because those, as well, are not necessarily the truest indicator of a racetrack. Um, I am open to using them, uh, mainly because I just think more data that is not necessarily... I don't find those races to be as volatile as a two-year-old race, as a maiden race, as a maiden claiming race. Bottom-level claimers, I'll use them. I have no problem with that. That should tackle all of the sort of proper business pieces that you would need in order to put a track profile together. And you can do this for any racetrack. That's the beautiful thing about it. And if you are someone who, who you know, if you just specialize on one track, it would be foolish not to do this. If you're someone who only plays Gulfstream, it would be foolish not to do something like this for Gulfstream Park. And I believe another piece that Brohammer has brought up in the past or in the book, you know, how long is a track profile good? Well, it's good until it's not anymore. So you'll see, especially if you're charting it on a sort of day-to-day basis, there will be instances where all of a sudden you want to you wanna pivot because you, there's a an entirely different sort of flow to one of the distances or one of the tracks or whatever it may be. Um, I'm of the opinion that with this, over the course of five years, I think you we have built in the the fact that some of these days listed in this data set are going to have been days where there was a wild speed bias or there was a wild closers bias. But on the whole, I think the data averages out enough and and those those outliers don't affect the results so dramatically that that it's a concern so that's where i stand with this piece here now let's get into some of the pieces that i would imagine many of you when you voiced your interest in this are curious about i'm going to come down here to the bottom it's also worth noting i have gone through and filtered out the the data sets that i believe to be outliers for all of them across the board. So at the second call of the six furlong race, the horse who was six and a half lengths in front, I I, I omitted that. I don't, that, that to me does not represent, that's an outlier from the data set. I've also omitted the seven lengths off at that second call and the 10.1, the 10 lengths and a neck off, or excuse me, and a head off because I don't believe they are truly representative of the whole. They are outliers. 
Can a horse win from 10.1 lengths off of it? Clearly they can. But to me, it's an outlier and it's not something that I want incorporated in my data because I don't think it's truly representative of the way that the track plays at that distance. So I've done that. I've gone through and I can basically go through and show you each and every one of them if you'd like. I'm using all of the data sets from the first call at the six furlong mark, uh, the first call is six and a half to seven. The only one I've omitted was the 11.1 lengths off of it early on. Uh, again, I, I could show you all of this throughout, but it, it's easier for you to just trust me when I say it needs to be a wild outlier for me to omit it from the sample. So let's get down to business. Let's scroll down to the very bottom and you'll see all told, uh, I believe it is five less maybe than what the the final number over here is as far as data points. Yeah, so we're, we're somewhere in the high 470 range as far as data points are concerned. And you can see up here still what sort of distance and, and surface we're dealing with. So after looking at all these data sets and these data points anyway, first call in a six furlong race, I found the average with the outliers withdrawn, with the, the, the set of data that I want, I found the average to be 1.8 lengths off the lead. Now again, when you take a look and see what the range of the set, the sample is, horses have been two lengths ahead. They've also been 7.8 lengths off of it at the first call and one. Again, we're only dealing with winners here in this profile. You can put together a profile for runner-ups if you're looking to play exotic wagers. I'm only looking at it from a winner standpoint. Using those, I found the average to be 1.8 lengths off the lead at the first call of a six furlong race. At the second call of a six furlong race, 1.19 lengths. Now, to put it into perspective for those of you who have not ever interpreted or looked at pace in this fashion, Think about second call in a six furlong race being the half mile. Two thirds of the race is over. Let me say that again. At the second call of a six furlong race, the second call being a half mile into the run, two thirds of the race is over. And I'm hopeful this is going to show why when people say, you know, I've had people, ah, oh, you, you pick too much speed, too much speed. There's a reason because speed on dirt or speed in, in the United States in general, I'll get to the turf in a minute. Speed is king. It is so much easier to win from a forward position than it is from a horse rallying from off of it. You need so many things to go your way from off the pace to win, especially when the track tends to be a little bit more friendly to speed. So a half mile into the run at six furlongs, is the second call. Two-thirds of the race is over. On average, I found 1.19 lengths off the lead. Now, from a range standpoint, I omitted the six-and-a-half length leader, which I believe was Nashville the other day. I also omitted the horses coming from six-and-a-half, seven, nine-and-a-half, and 10.1 lengths off of it at the second call because I'm going to just go out on a limb. I don't know why that five got left off. And what does that change the number to? So there we go. There was a little bit of a, a funny piece there. The five, for whatever reason, the five length data point had been omitted when I sent it over. 
So it changes to 1.23. So again, we're dealing effectively with what I would consider four heads. Mild difference. But the point is, I think you need to be pretty darn close to the front end to have a chance to win. And I'm going to go out on a limb and say these four data points that I have omitted, you think about it, if you're six and a half lengths off of it with a quarter mile to go, it must have been a complete pace meltdown. Forget about the 10 length horse who came from that far off of it. So that's the general sort of gist of things. It's a shame that whenever I keep doing that, it keeps going all the way to the top. Anyway, neither here nor there. And for those of you that are listening only, I would strongly encourage you this week to check out the YouTube pod because, again, visually, this is going to be a much more fruitful exercise than just listening to it. So that's my general feel and what the data would suggest for these races going six furlongs. Now, I didn't see a tremendous difference as far as wet weather was concerned, really across the board. I thought for the most part, everything was pretty tight. You know, uh, I can filter it by color here. So it, it gets a little bit tighter gets a little bit tighter, goes down to just under a length off of it. So I guess I guess you can call it a half length difference. But again, you're dealing with a much smaller sample size as opposed to the overall body of work. I wouldn't get too crazy with that. I still think in general, the overall piece is what you want to be using. Um, that's just my opinion. As I go through, let's do this. Let's go no fill. Let's select all, take out the six and a half, take out these guys. And that should get us back to our 1.23 as far as the off of it. Okay. So you follow where I'm at. I'm hopeful this is going to be, again, it's going to be a little, it's a, it's a bit of a denser piece than what maybe we're used to here for the pod, but I think it is certainly valuable. And now that you know, how I've gone through this, I can just rattle them off. So a little less than two lengths off of it at first call going six furlongs, about a length and a quarter off of it at second call going six. At six and a half, at first call, one and a half off of it. At second call, about one and a quarter. So we can already draw some pretty significant conclusions, in my opinion, between the six and seven, six, six and a half and seven furlong races. While other racetracks, there tends to be a pretty significant disparity between the two. This model suggests that they're, they're pretty similar. They're more similar than they're dissimilar, put it that way. And where you need to be positioned in those one turn races from seven furlongs and under. You need to be close to the pace, which again is not really breaking any news. You can win from other positions, but you need a number of things to go your way. I would rather be closer than farther off of it. This is not breaking any news. The beard course, I'm just going to kind of gloss over that quickly. Uh, a little more than a length off it at first call and a half length off of it at second call. So again, you can see a pretty, pretty significant difference there from the other races that we've broken off, which again kind of lends to what my initial point was when talking about how certain distances can play differently while you think, oh, well, they're, they're all dirt sprints. Well, not all dirt sprints are the same. Certain values and certain traits are going to be more important than others in certain instances. Uh, the route races, and I think this is an important piece to look at. At first call, which again in a route race is going to be a half mile into it. So we're going to go onto the backside. That's the first call in a route race on dirt. 
just under two lengths off of it is the average. Now, again, that doesn't mean that you can't win from farther off of it. When we take a look at the range, you've got horses who ultimately went on to win that were three and a half lengths ahead and were 12 lengths off of it. So the, the range is, is pretty dramatic, but it's difficult to get past the fact that you have so many data points all within sort of that, well, let's just call a spade a spade, within that three, three lengths off of it to two lengths ahead sort of range. And it all averages out to just under two lengths off of it at the first call. Second call is the important one to me. For the route races, something to keep in mind, unless you think you're going to have a pace meltdown, the winner on average from the data that I collected is less than a length off of it. This would be at the three-quarter mark in a route race. Now think about that. Less than a length off of it. We always talk about the Belmont Stakes and how, for the most part, yes, there are exceptions to the rule. Of course, like Sir Winston rallying from off the pace. But he was a little bit closer than he typically was in the past. Point is, we talk about the Belmont Stakes all the time and how the longer the race gets, in all actuality, speed becomes even more potent and more dangerous. It's something to think about when you're trying to lay out how a race like the Breeders' Cup Classic is going to play out at a mile and a quarter. Now, there'll be some who will look at it and say, yeah, but there's going to be plenty of speed in there. It'll set up for it'll set up for improbable coming from three or four off of it. It very, may very well, and that may be how I go about the race. All I'm saying is the data would suggest you've got to be pretty darn close to the front end, three quarters of the way into the race, which for those of you that are trying to kind of visualize the racetrack, that's going into the far turn. Think about that now. Three quarters of a mile into the race, going a route of ground on dirt at Keeneland in the fall, on average, from what I've gathered, less than a length off of it. Food for thought. Now, the turf is where you're going to see some differences. I think it's fascinating. Let's start off with the five and a half for long turf sprints. My The, the bane of my existence, the turf sprint. On average... Basically two and a half lengths at both calls, which is a stark contrast from the dirt sprint. And again, it goes to, it has a lot to do with the way races are run. Speed is still very important in turf sprints. Um, I, again, Jonathan Kinchin was the one that kind of made me sort of open my eyes to that and say, wow, you know what? It, it is as simple as that, where you'd much rather be forward than coming from off of it. But there is still a difference. Because you think about it, you're dealing with a shorter length race on turf, going five and a half, as opposed to a six furlong race on dirt. But look at the differences here. At first call, going five and a half furlongs, two and a half lengths is the average off of it, as opposed to about 1.9 lengths off of it on dirt. You're talking about more than a half length difference in a race that theoretically is at a shorter distance and going faster. Never mind the half. The half is nearly an entire, it's more than a full length difference between the turf run a half mile into it and the dirt run a half mile into it. And that has a lot to do with the way that turf races are run, where you can't have closers. And again, we'll take a look at it. I believe I took out one horse 
half mile into it who came from 8.9 lengths out of it. But you're going to note that there are many more horses rallying from off of it in the turf sprint half mile into it at second call as opposed to horses rallying from well off of it in the dirt race. Just interesting little pieces, little tidbits. We come back to the turf. Mile races. Obviously, the Breeders' Cup mile is of note. First call, half mile into the run, three and a half lengths. Second call, three quarters of a mile. We're dealing with a quarter mile difference. Look at the average distance. Uh, excuse me, the average lengths change. It went from three and a half to just over two. So, again, it's not suggesting that you can't win from 100 out of it, as the data would suggest. We've got horses that have won from more than seven lengths off of it three-quarters of the way into the run. But on average, you need to be within a couple lengths of the front, entering the far turn, going a mile on turf. Now think about some of the horses who I've talked about in the past that are like the perfect blend of speed and late kick on turf. Teppin, Wise Dan, a couple of horses who had great success at Keeneland at a mile. Where were they positioned? About a length, two lengths off of it going into the far turn in those mile races. I think it's worth noting and, and factoring that into your handicapping as you go forward. Now you'll note there's a little bit of a difference between the eight furlong turf races and the eight and a half to nine and a half furlong turf races, but not a tremendous difference. On average, three lengths off of it at the first call, about two and a quarter, two and a third off of it at second call. So a mild difference, but nothing nothing earth shattering. And you could even say the same for the long distance turf race. The one thing I will say, I don't believe there are I I don't think there are a ton of data points as far as the mile and a half turf races are concerned that I would make vast conclusions from. But I think just in general you can see sort of a, a pattern here with these turf races. Where at first call you'd rather be you don't have to be up on it. But you also don't want to be coming from a million out of it. does not mean you can't win from coming from a million out of it, but it's on average, you're about three and a half off of it. And then at the second call, you are getting into position to, to take your shot, rounding the far turn, as opposed to the horses that need to uncork that run from way out. That's what I have concluded as far as the track profile at Keeneland in the fall dating back to 2015 is concerned. If you have questions, leave them beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter, although on Twitter I have a number of things changed, so I will not get nearly as many of the comments or the things coming to me. So specifically about this, but leave the comments beneath the video player on YouTube, and I will make it a point if there are enough questions to go back next week and and assess and we can go through and, and I can try to help you out a little bit we'll have some more data points as well because we'll have another week's worth of racing at Keeneland to, to use and throw in there but for the most part my my overall conclusions the dirt it's pretty straightforward and it's you can say the same thing about many tracks in the United States you want to be more forward than not you don't want to be having the rally from a million off of it. You, you can win from a million off of it, but you need a number of things to go your way. And on turf, again, you don't have to be up on the lead, but you still want to be within shouting distance. 
you can win from way off of it. But on average, you want to be a little bit closer than farther off. I hope this was a, a fruitful exercise for all of you. It was something I was going to do anyway because I'm a big believer in this sort of thing. And this is part of what I'm talking about when if you do your homework in advance, you're not scrambling around trying to piece things together. Again, there can be days in here where there are significant biases. And it doesn't even account for inside or outside sort of stuff. It all accounts for where horses are positioned in relation to the pace setter. And ultimately, these are all winners. Every horse charted on here won their race. It's a matter of where they were in relation to the pace situation at the first and second call at any given distance on either surface. And I think there's great information to be gleaned by using something like this. So now when all the races come out and you see some averages and you look at it and you go, okay, well, I know for the Breeders' Cup Sprint, there are three or four horses who like to be forwardly placed, a couple other horses who can be forward but can also sit within a couple lengths Maybe they'll make that move. Turn time is another piece. That's an entirely different story for another day. But horses who can be in good position can accelerate through the turn. Or I shouldn't even say accelerate on dirt because that's not really how it goes. They don't slow down as much on the turn as some of the other runners do. At the top of the lane, got a quarter mile to go. We're only going to have, you know, at that point, there's only a third of the race left to run. I like this horse because of where they're going to be positioned. I think it can make the handicapping exercise a little bit less stressful. I think it can be a little bit more efficient with your time with a well-put-together track profile. And we'll leave it at that. Questions, comments, concerns beneath the video player on YouTube. There it is, the track profile for Keeneland Racecourse in the fall. Hopefully some of you found that enjoyable. Questions, comments, concerns beneath the video player on YouTube. Again, thanks to Andrew Wright. To help out with this week's Friday feature, the 9th at Keeneland, the Valley View. If you want to be in Andrew's position in two weeks' time, leave your selection beneath the video player on YouTube, and I will contact you. Uh, questions, comments, concerns, you know the drill. Again, beneath the video player or on Twitter at Bernie or underscore Matt. Uh, please rate, review, and subscribe however you listen to this thing. It's greatly, greatly appreciated. Uh, we all appreciate the support that we've had so far throughout the year. So uh, hopefully continuing on as we get closer and closer to the Breeders' Cup World Championships in just a few short weeks. Uh, that's going to do it for Episode 36. I will be back next Tuesday with Episode 37. Until then, best of luck however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play. This has been the Matt Bernie Show. Thank you.